In today's episode of Living Adventurously, I chat with Anna Hughes, who lives on a narrow boat. She has sailed round the coast of Britain, despite getting very seasick. And she's also cycled 4,000 miles around the coast of Britain, despite hating camping, opting instead, and probably very wisely, for a nice shower and a comfy bed every evening. But first, a quick message from today's sponsor, the Bendrig Trust. During lockdown, many people have been discovering their local areas more. From my own experience, going on adventures with my two-year-old, the outdoors provides excitement. Wow, look at that view. Problem-solving skills. How do we cross this river? And opportunities to assess risk. Should I climb to the top of this boulder? We are lucky that accessing the outdoors for us is easy. For many disabled people, this is not the case. A simple walk, a trip out on a lake, or a climb at a local crag, and all the benefits these activities bring can often be inaccessible. That is where the Bendrig Trust steps in. Bendrig provides adventurous opportunities to people of all abilities, empowering them with the skills and attitudes they need to thrive. These opportunities have never been more needed than now. As a charity, Bendrig relies on donations to keep accessible adventure going. So if you, like me, know the huge benefits of living adventurously, please consider donating to the Bendrig Trust by visiting bendrig.org.uk. Thank you. It was watching the Age of Stupid movie in which people of the future look back on our generation with astonishment at how we allowed our planet to be trashed that convinced Anna Hughes that she wanted to do more than just live a low-impact, adventurous, quiet life. Today, Anna runs flightfree.co.uk and argues that not flying does not mean not travelling. It's about relishing what you can do, not regretting what you can't. Do you still live on a boat? That's one of the many cool things about you. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, thanks for, for asking. <laughs> um, yeah, I live on a narrow boat, I'm currently moored on the River Lee in East London. And I travel up and down the Lee from Hertfordshire to London. And that's kind of my little stomping ground or cruising ground, as it were. Oh, that sounds a bit dodgy. Uh, how, far, how, far, yeah, it does. how far is that? What sort of range can you cover on a, on a narrow boat? So I have a cruising license, which means I have to cover 26 miles, 26 linear miles in any calendar year, which basically means from Limehouse by the Thames up to Hartford, which is the top of the River Lee, that you can't go any further than that. There's a really cool sign on the bridge that says end of navigation. I, I wish it just said stop, turn around. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the whole, I, I can go anywhere in the waterway network. Um, everything's linked, but obviously I choose to live in London and cruising up and down the River Lee. It, it's such a gorgeous mixture of countryside and city. You know, I can, I can be very much in London, but still feel like I'm in the, in the, um, it's a green corridor. It's lovely. Um, but yeah, loads of, loads of riverside pubs, which is a bonus. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, suits me. Yeah. When I cycled around Yorkshire last summer, one of the many surprises but a really big surprise was the canal network you know, as particularly oh. Yorkshire was very sort of all the dark satanic mills and grim <laughs> polluted canals but it was absolutely lovely the green yeah. cycle paths and I've never seen so many kingfishers in my life it was a real 
delight. Oh, kingfishers. I wrote a poem about a kingfisher. I was moored on the Kennet and Avon a few years ago because um, I took my boat all the way to Bristol, which is an advantage of living on a moving home um, and lived there for a bit. And um, yeah, gosh, the number of kingfishers, it was just, I, I think I hadn't seen one since childhood. And then I saw them every day and it just absolutely yeah. pleased me so much. Um, uh, yeah. I think you're right as well about the canal network. So it, obviously it was built for industry. Um, and then when the railways came, they, they they fell out of use and lots of them fell into complete disrepair. So uh, they just dry, were dried up or filled in or whatever. Um, and then lots of them have been restored recently. So, well, in the last I don't know, 50 years or something. I think there's been kind of big restoration projects. Some are still ongoing. So yeah, as you say, now they're just these beautiful corridors of wildlife, really green, um, much more focused on leisure. And there are still some working boats, but mostly it is leisure and, um, you know, day trippers and holiday makers and cyclists and walkers. And it's really lovely. How do you get your post when you live on a canal? <laughs> well, actually, I, I have... Um, I have my aunt's address. So my aunt lives, has a house in Clapton, so I can get post sent to her or my sister who lives at the top of the Lee in Ware. So yeah, I'm, I'm registered to vote up there. <laughs> so yeah, I can kind of <laughs> pretend to be normal, but really I'm a nomad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and do you still smell of wood smoke? <laughs> well, not right now because it's the middle of summer, but yeah, yeah, from the months of October to March, I pretty much constantly smell of wood smoke, which, which I hope by the way, nice I, smell. I, I Yes, exactly. I'm saying that as a compliment. I, re- I remember, I can't remember what the event was, some sort of adventure event that uh, we were at. And I remember giving you a hug and you smelt very much of wood smoke, which is a, a sign of a good person. Oh, well, it always sticks around in the hair, I find, or, or my co- mm. like my coats. So I don't smell it when I'm on the boat. And then when I hug someone, like what you just said, they say, oh, you smell of wood smoke. Wow. Do you do you cook on a wood stove? Was it just for heating? Um, I don't. There are some people that do, but I have a, a just a gas hob, a gas oven, so that is really nice and easy to do. But um, yeah, I, I often keep my kettle on the on the stove, so um, I hardly ever boil. I hardly ever use gas to boil my kettle in the winter. And it, honestly, it's the most satisfying thing when your your kettle just starts to puff a little bit while it's sitting there on the stove. So. Oh. <laughs> right. I wasn't intending to talk to you about canal boats, but I could very happily talk about canal boats for uh, for the for the rest of our chat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the phone's um, ringing here. Do we need to stop for a second? Can you hear yeah, that? No, you, I, I can hear it. Is it is it for you? No, no. Just okay. Sorry, okay. maybe <laughs> cut those few seconds of phone ringing out. <clears throat> Don't worry. Phone, phone rings. Phone ringing is the least of my problems okay. in life. Um, what, what, what I intended to ask you about was not kingfishers and wood smoke, mm-hmm. was uh, to go straight in with your first epic bike ride Yeah. Um, when you cycled around the UK. Um, why were you itching for a big adventure? Well, I, I think adventure came to me in the same way as it comes to many people. You kind of read stories of other people doing big bike rides or um, big uh, trips and you think oh I'd love to do that and you never really make that step from saying I'd love to do that to actually doing it um I think you're to blame for this Al so um remember remember we met 
because I, so I used to work for Sustrans. Um, obviously, I've been a cyclist my whole life. I'm super passionate about cycling. And I've always been really excited by the fact that I can just get on my bike and go go anywhere I choose. And I can make an adventure of it in a day or take a tent and have a couple of days. You know, I'm just exploring by bike has always been something I've been so enthusiastic about, um, which is what led me to get this job with Sustrans. And then um, Sustrans are a charity that promotes sustainable transport. And they also manage the National Cycle Network in the UK. And so discovering that kind of opened up this whole, wow, I could go way further afield than just cycling to work or around my local area. Um, and then, yes, I met you because you came to some of my schools and told the children about your massive bike ride around the world. And um, I think you might he we might have just been talking about long bike rides. And I said, oh, I'd love to cycle around the coast of Britain. And you said, well, go on then. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of was all I needed. I mean, um, it did sort of coincide with um, coming to the end of that job. I thought, well, if, this is an opportunity. You know, my, my contract's coming to an end. I've had this idea for ages. Um, all I need to do is put it into practice. And, and I did. And it took about six months in the planning, just deciding which route I would take, um, where I would stay, how, how far I was likely to be able to cycle each day. It was my first big tour. So of course I made all those novice mistakes, like taking the wrong things, taking far too much, assuming I'd have loads of time for watching TV in the evenings and all that kind of stuff. Things that you don't even want to do once you're on the road. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up going 4,000 miles around the coast of England, Scotland, and Wales, uh, right the way around the edge of Britain. It was, it was kind of a poetic thing. I started on the Thames in London, obviously living in London, that was the, that was my gateway to the, to the sea. And I, um, I started on Tower Bridge knowing that if I just kept on pedaling and kept the sea on my right-hand side, eventually I would get back to where I started. And I just loved that poetry. So yeah, that, that was kind of the catalyst and the idea behind it. Why, why the sea on your right, not on the left? Um, Isn't that across the lane of traffic? I, I suppose, yes, it is actually, isn't it? Um, <laughs> no, no reason other than I had previously done a couple of days along the coast in that direction. So it kind of was stuck in my head that that was the way to go. Um, okay. but yeah, no, I mean, a lot of the time I was on cycle paths anyway, so it didn't matter. <laughs> I was really impressed to get cycling around Yorkshire by the, the, the cycle network mm. and also really impressed with how well Google Maps seem to know about these cycle yes, tracks. It's quite well I was joined really up impressed. Now. Yeah. I was really impressed. I could just put, I want to go from York to Leeds, mm. bicycle modes, and it would take me down loads of, it was really good. Yeah, there's some fantastic routes. And you must have gone around Robin Hood's Bay. Oh, love yes. that part. Because that's, that's a disused railway line. Um, oh, yes. And I mean, yes, imagine the trains chugging up that gradient. Wow. Oh. So, yeah, yeah, really gorgeous. What were some other uh, favourite areas? Oh, well, the classics of Cornwall, <laughs> Devon. The coastline there is just stunning. And of course, the weather is lovely. Um, I happen to have absolutely incredible weather for my for my ride around, um, for that part of the ride. Um, and Western Scotland as well is just ethereally beautiful in many ways. The, the Something I noticed as well, we kind of think that the UK is... We, we kind of forget how big and varied the UK is. So um, 
off the coast of Scotland, you do get these incredibly clear waters and it feels very mysterious in many ways. Um, down in Cornwall, it also feels quite um, quite mysterious because of all the folklore and the pirates and all that kind of stuff. But the, the sea itself has a totally different quality. It does feel more tropical. Um, the colours are different. Um, it's a bit more rich. So yeah, I, I loved that aspect of it, just discovering the variety from top to bottom. Um, of course, those two are very uh, very typically favourite parts of the UK, Cornwall and Western Scotland. But I also loved the kind of just the, the beaches just north of Aberdeen. So you might not think of Aberdeen as this beauty spot because you probably think more of oil tankers because <laughs> it's a very industrial uh, city. But the nature around it is just phenomenal. And there are sand dunes there that you feel that you could absolutely get lost in because you just can't see anything but sand for as far as the eye can see. So all of these things that I, I just thought, I can't believe that this stuff is on my doorstep, you know, and most people don't know about it. This is something I'm going to have to shout about from now on, you know, UK travel. And, and I do, I really, really do promote UK travel a lot because I just think it's so wonderful what we have here. Yeah. When I, when I started riding around Yorkshire, I was, I was excited about it and I wanted to compare how cycling around my home area felt compared to flying off to the ends of the earth and flying mm. or even cycling to the, to the <laughs> yeah. ends of the earth and I was a, I thought it was a good idea but I was a bit worried that a whole month in just little old Yorkshire <laughs> might I might have kind of had my fill but within a few days I was thinking oh I wish I had two months or three months of, to just be in yeah. this small area the the, the you, you go 10 miles and things change, don't they, in Britain? Absolutely. And and that's also a benefit of having places quite compact because there is so much variety in that 10-mile difference. So it's different from, let's say, cycling across the United States of America because then, then you're in the same kind of thing for days on end. <laughs> Whereas here, you really can go from... A, a single day's ride will take you from, from mountains to plains. And that's such a treasure. You know, it's such a, a, a good contrast that it really keeps up the interest and yeah you're absolutely right I think as well um a lot of this is about the concept of travel so um is it about how far you go or how many um how many places you can take off well it can also be about um slowing down and finding the uh, the extraordinary in the ordinary you know, looking at things with new eyes and saying, well, I have been to this city before, but usually I just pass through it on a, on a train or usually, you know, even, even a commute to work. Well, usually I ride really fast through here. Um, um, yeah, I'm usually on my bike. So, you know, I don't notice this bit or this, this hidden path here. And then if you, if you just look at it with new eyes and, and you look at it in a, well, this is my adventure kind of way, you start to discover all those special parts of it and things you didn't notice before. And I think that's really important and we can really apply that to the way we travel. Mm. Yeah. I mean, 4,000 miles is a, that's like, that's much further than cross America or it's like cycling from England to Iran yes, or something. I think or, I worked it out. I'd end up, I had I Cairo gone in a, to yeah. Kenya or something. Yeah. Sorry. No, yeah. Had I gone in a straight line, it would have been Iran that I'd ended up in. Rather okay. Than right, back on uh, um, <laughs> So that's a long way, and yet uh, you don't like camping. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you didn't take it. You didn't camp no. on that trip, did you? No, I didn't. What a wimp! I know, such a wimp. <laughs> oh, well, or was um, it just sensible to to figure? I don't like this aspect of travel, so I'll just leave it and I'll do it the way I do want to well, do it. Well, I tell you what, Al. 
I didn't go on a camping trip. I went on a cycling <laughs> trip. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I did get a bit of stick from those hardcore cycling tourists about how it wasn't a real adventure because I didn't have any canvas. I didn't sleep under canvas, but I was like, look. It's not a real right. adventure if you enjoy yourself. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't <laughs> like camping. Why would I do that? Um, so I actually did the very difficult job of arranging all my accommodation in advance. Um, which worked out actually. I mean, I, I built in contingency days in case I didn't make it for whatever reason, but I managed to get uh, to each place. Um, I had a few rest days built in. So, you know, I used those as buffers, which was good. But yeah, I mean, I loved having a shower and a, and a bed and a pillow at the end of every day. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and very sensible too. Yeah. Although having said yeah. that, I, I have since bought a tent and used it many, many times. So um, now um, my... My most recent cycle tour, which was down through France, I camped and I massively appreciated the freedom of not knowing where I was going to stay that night, but knowing I would be able to stay somewhere. So yeah, it's a totally different way of doing things. Um, but for my first tour, I was happy I left that bit behind. I, I mean, I left that bit out of it. It kind of made things easier. And then once you do your first tour, you realize how to do it. And then you can, you know, everything changes. It doesn't have to be the same each time. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I think I think the notion of feeling that what I do isn't an adventure because someone did more, or what I do isn't an adventure because I want to take a pillow with me is <laughs> is ridiculous. I think the more we can just let just say to people, do do what you want to do, and that's yeah. fine. That's quite an important part of travel, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I still can fit a pillow in my panniers. <laughs> oh me too <laughs> not just a blow up yes. one a real feather pillow it's very important oh really <laughs> yeah. oh wow I have been known to do that it depends what your priorities <laughs> are at the time <laughs> yeah absolutely so one one question which I've been asking you and your ilk for many years <laughs> which I think actually feel well I won't put words into your mouth I'll just ask the question um being a woman going on a long adventure versus a, a man going to cycle around Britain. Did, mm. did you back then feel barriers and do, do you still feel those same barriers towards women in adventure? I, I do and I don't. So being on a bicycle as a solo woman, I have only ever found to be a positive experience. I feel that people want to help you. When I've done talks and we've done the whole kind of women, women touring and then men touring, the men, all they talk about, not all they talk about, the men always include a story about being attacked <laughs> or carrying an axe, all these kinds of things. And the women just don't. That stuff just doesn't happen. Of course, it does happen. But, you know, it, it, that's not what defines solo female travel. You honestly, wherever you go in the world, you know, we talk about the kindness of strangers in um, across the world. Well, that happens here in the UK too. And being a solo woman, people wanted to help me and they offered me cups of tea and they gave me free fudge and they, you know, they, they helped me and they offered me a bed and all this kind of stuff. And I feel that that's universal. I can't speak, of course, what it's like to be a solo man traveling, but I do suspect from the stories I've heard, I do suspect that it's, that it, that you are less threatening as a woman. Um, especially if you don't shave your head. <laughs> yes. We were talking before yeah. about Al's um, hair shaving. <laughs> yes, yes. How I, when I've shaved my head, people dodge me on the street because I suddenly look tough. <laughs> anyway. So um, after... But yeah, I was going to say the other aspect of that is, of course, the general status of women in adventure. And there is this societal expectation that women can't do things. Um, and so you 
we really have to pick each other up as as women who adventure and and show that you don't have to be all these amazing things to go on these amazing adventures you really can just be a normal person who has a bit of time and an idea and the and the wherewithal to put it all together um but yeah unless you see women doing these things then you won't do them yourself so it, it's up to us also to be role models and to talk about it and to and just say look the the, the world is not as big and scary as you think um there there's so much to discover and the vast, vast majority of the time is super friendly, super safe. Um, you know, just get out there and do it. So who are some, who are some women in adventure who are doing good things you could uh, give a shout out to? So I love Kate Rawls. She is an environmentalist and an adventure. So obviously uh, I, I'm interviewing her in a week oh, or two. Amazing. She is such a good speaker and she's so lovely as well. Very gentle. Um, and environment is something that's close to my heart. I worked in environment and climate change for most of my career. So, um, and I will always try and talk about that when I do my adventures as well. So one of the reasons um, that I didn't, well, one of the reasons I chose to cycle around Britain was because I didn't want my adventure to involve a flight. Um, so yeah, I, um, we can talk about that if, uh, later, but, um, yeah, so Kate Rawls is amazing. Um, she's very inspirational. She has put some fantastic content out as well. She's got some really good videos. So if you want to look up her videos, then, um, I, I find her very easy to watch. She's great. Um, we've also got Emily Chappell, who is, uh, I've met her several times. She's a friend of mine here from London and she is just kind of, a super hardcore woman on the outside, but um, again, she's she's just a normal lady who's decided to do these things, and um, she's obviously she's gained a name for herself because of her incredible endurance riding. But again, she's just a normal person who chooses to ride a bike extraordinary distances. But yeah, I find her very inspirational as well, and she's written she does um, she writes really well, and she's written a lot about her um, development as a cyclist and her kind of um, her being being in a man's world she writes about that quite a lot so um yeah um emily is great um oh so many more so many um too many to name i, I won't i won't put you on the spot for those any longer <laughs> but if any, if any names pop up just shout them out to rep style throughout our chat <laughs> okay. um so um i i am i'm about i do want to talk a lot about the flying yeah. but before that, after cycling around Britain, you then sailed around Britain. Yes. How was that different to the cycling? Oh, it was so incredibly different and different to the extent to an extent that I hadn't really anticipated. So um, I came back from my bike ride around Britain, absolutely obsessed with the British coast. I just had the most incredible adventure, as I said, really wanting to kind of promote and push UK travel and adventure. And this... Um, and of course, having been on the coast the whole time, I was surrounded by boats a lot. And that's always a romantic thing. You know, wouldn't it be lovely to be, to be on that boat? Um, I then saw an, an opportunity come up with a sailing school to do a round Britain expedition. And this was really just with a sailing school. You know, it, it was, um, it was you, so you're learning how to sail at the same time. So I had done a, a bit of sailing before that, but nothing really. And um, so I kind of learned on the job as it were. Um, and it was a three month trip all the way from Brixham in South in Devon round and then finishing there again, um, round clockwise. So different to how I had cycled. Um, and I found it really, really hard if I'm honest. 
um, partly because it wasn't my adventure. It was someone else's itinerary. And of course, we could plan where we went, but ultimately we couldn't really. We were just told that we could. And then we had to go where the skipper said. <laughs> and, um, and also when you sail, you sail in a series of straight lines. And I hadn't anticipated that we wouldn't be tracing this incredibly zigzag coast because you don't do that. Um, and, and seeing like the out looking at my bike ride or looking at the incredibleness of the UK from the outside in. That's not what happened. And half the time I was being sick over the side. So <laughs> I didn't see anything anyway. You know, I, um, I struggled quite a lot with it. Um, and I, I didn't ever get over my seasickness, which was a massive um, downer. Oh, that is the, the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. Isn't it? But there, now, is a, there is a guaranteed cure for it, though. It's probably a bit late to tell you. Go on. Uh, sit underneath a tree. <laughs> on a boat? <laughs> no, get back on land and sit under a tree. <laughs> okay, yeah. yes. Okay. Oh, so, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. I'm really glad I did it because, well, first of all, it tested me. And, you know, coming out the other side, I was like, thank goodness, you know, and, but I've done it. And also now I know how to sail and I can, I can, I can now travel the entire world under my own steam if I were to choose to do so. John Ridgway, the old grizzled old adventure guy, calls the ocean the magic carpet because okay. he had he, his boat, his book actually called And Then We Sailed Away from his home up in northwest Scotland. You can get in, got onto his small family yacht and sail away from the oh, bottom of his garden out into the entire that's the dream. planet. That is the dream, mm. isn't it? Yep. Yeah. I've read lots of books so, about sailing. And in fact, that's what I would recommend. <laughs> read books about other people doing it. <laughs> yes. I think that's true of a lot of adventure stuff. <laughs> so these these are fabulous adventures around the UK, but you haven't been on a plane for many years, which I, I think the subtext of that is that you must be terribly boring and <laughs> untravelled. Oh. Um, yes. Yeah, so I haven't been on a plane for more than 10 years. Um, frankly, though, when I did go on a plane, I wasn't particularly well-traveled either. You know, I, I mean, I, I went to New York for my 21st birthday, which was a great trip and a great adventure. But um, other trips are just sort of Prague for my boyfriend's birthday, you know, the predictable stuff and Ibiza and everything. Um, places that you can get to overland. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily um, a given that just because you access air travel means that you're particularly well traveled. Um, but no, uh, um, not flying doesn't mean not traveling, of course. And since I stopped flying, I have been to as many places as I did before. Um, all within Europe, of course, because I haven't yet done the cargo ship transatlantic thing or the Trans-Siberian Express train or whatever it is. So uh, yeah, I, I have just done um, trips within Europe, but you know that includes pretty much all the countries that are our near neighbours and a couple that are further away. So um, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Brussels, Luxembourg, Switzerland, France, Germany, blah, blah, blah. So lots of travelling. Yeah. <laughs> Which if you live, for example, in... Chicago would be like the trip of a lifetime, wouldn't it? To go to all those cool places in Europe. So, exactly. So, yeah. I feel so that, what, yeah, we don't, we do overlook what's under our noses a lot. So, so I'm not, I, I do want to talk to you mostly now about flight free travel, mm -hmm. but I think that we can look at this as an exciting, positive story rather than just a deprivation <laughs> hair shirt aren't I a martyr yeah a deprivation type thing so is it, can you give me some 
exciting examples of either your trips or people you've heard of who've committed to not traveling is what what's cool about traveling without flying definitely so there as with anything it's about seeing what you can do not about seeing it as a restriction and look at the places you can no longer go to because as we know there are so many incredible places right here um let's so a, a few years ago i ran the copenhagen marathon um and i obviously wasn't going to get there by plane so i booked my train travel uh which had exchange uh, which has interchanges in brussels Cologne and Hamburg on the way. Um, so those are three cities that I've never been to that I was able to experience, even if it is just having a coffee in the square outside Cologne Station in the shadow of that incredible medieval cathedral. That's a place that people actually go to for an actual holiday, and I just got it as a bonus as part of it. So um, I feel overland travel, it just um, it allows you to experience more things because of the interchanges. Um, also, it is a geography lesson. I'm obsessed with maps. I'm obsessed with how everything connects. And um, the fact that I could kind of ex- like feel the landscapes and you come out of the Channel Tunnel, you're like, it still just looks like England. And then it's steadily kind of, and then you then you notice a few things which are different, like the architecture and the, the tiles on the roof are slightly different. And, and then you kind of wend your way um, into Belgium and then into Germany and, and the languages around you change because people get on and off the trains and, and the landscape morphs and then eventually you get to where you're going. And it's, it's, be, it's been an education. And I think that's so that enriches us as travelers. You know, we often talk about what travel gives us and, and connecting with places and people. And I feel that that is so much easier and more genuine when you do it over land rather than that kind of plucked up, transported and plopped down in the next place. Yeah. Um, I, oh. Just well, the other thing about that journey, I have to share this because it blew my mind. <laughs> so um, when we uh, when the train had got to the um, north coast of Germany, um, it went onto a ferry. The train <laughs> rolled onto a ferry. And then we wow. crossed the little strait of whatever it was to Denmark by sea. And then the train continued its journey. And I was just like, are you kidding? My two favorite <laughs> things, <laughs> trains <laughs> and ferries. Oh my God. And we got off and like went up and had dinner and stuff. It was just, yeah, it really blew my mind that that happened. Unfortunately, that route is no longer in use and the train now takes the longer but quicker route around the German mainland into Denmark that way. But yeah, what an experience. <laughs> mm. I I love going to places in Europe by train. I try uh, going to more, uh, talks by train, and it feels to me similar to cycling in the way that you get that gradual little change from yeah. St Pancras Station to gradually, as you just nicely described, that change, which is very much reminds me of going on a cycle journey yeah. rather than the grimness of EasyJet. Um, so I I love it, and I really love that. I love when people get onto the train mm. and they chat in their own language and mm. they're, or they're off to work or whatever and they get off and you think, oh, they're going to the shops or whatever. It's, I really, <laughs> really love that yeah. nosiness aspect of it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really nice. Um, yeah, tra- trains are great. <laughs> um, so what committed you from being someone who's sad about climate change, which I imagine is every single listener to this podcast, mm. Um, to being someone who is actually doing something about it? I think partly the way my parents brought me up. So it was to, um, in a way that was to do everything I could to 
be as good as I could for the environment. So um, since I was a child, I never wanted to drive. Um, well, that's kind of a lie. When I was 17, I, I loved to drive <laughs> and I wanted to drive my, car, my mum's car to school and she wouldn't let me. <laughs> but okay, so from the age of being a student, I um, I was like, well, I don't, I don't, I definitely don't want a car. I don't want to drive. Not only do I enjoy riding my bike more, it's actually, I can't, I, I just don't want to make that pollution. So that's kind of been my mindset through most of my life. I don't want to do something if it creates waste. And I see driving as a waste because it's, it's burning petrol. Well, why would you do that if you could burn calories and from, you know, by riding your bike? Um, I, and, and as we, and this is true for everybody, as we go through our lives and learn new things and learn more about our place in the world, um, that then translates into our behavior. So um, I, I used to shop at Primark and then I, re- I learned that that's not particularly ethical. Uh, so I stopped doing that. And now all my ch- clothes c- come from charity shops. Um, well, they come from Primark via the charity shop. <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, and yeah, I used to, I used to eat meat and not think about it. And then I learned that actually, if I wanted to reduce my impact upon the vi- environment, it's a much better idea to be vegan. And now I'm vegan, and I adore being vegan. And I don't feel, again, like we were talking about that whole missing out thing. I really don't feel like I'm missing out by not eating animal products anymore. All I see is this incredibly delicious food that I now have. Um, and there's a whole world of food that doesn't involve animal products. So I don't feel restricted in any way by these choices. Um, and flying was one that, um, you know, it's just, you know, you hop on a plane and you go to wherever you're going and you barely think about the emissions because you already don't drive and you already don't eat meat and blah, blah, blah. But um, I watched The Age of Stupid back in 2009, which was the film by Frenny Armstrong, which starred Pete Postlethwaite as a man living in a hypothetical future, looking back at the things that we were doing and what, how we were knowingly screwing everything up. And I, and one of the things to come out of that was if, you know, if you really want to reduce your emissions, you've got to stop flying. And so I did straight away. Um, and then what, so what, go on, carry oh, on. I was just going to say that, that kind of, those kinds of values were fine to sort of as ways in, in which I wanted to live my life. And I sort of didn't ever try and impose that on other people, but, um, then it got to last year or the end of 2018, when the IPCC report came out saying, guys, it's serious. We've got 10 years. We've got to sort things out. And I was like, oh, crap. Um, well, maybe just me doing my own thing is no longer good enough. Maybe I need to be actively encouraging other people to make these decisions too, because we don't have time for people to come to it in their own time. And, you know, I really want to encourage people to make these positive choices for the environment and for themselves. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I started this campaign, Flight Free 2020. It's gone really well so far. It, it, well, no one's flying. You've, you've done. You've won. Well done. <laughs> Um, Tom, Tom Allen wrote a really good blog post yes. about the amplification effect of these things mm. in that it's fi- one thing for him to decide to not go flying because it makes him feel better <laughs> or to whatever reason. Um, but in the world he lives in as an adventurer, and I'm sure he will hate this word, but an influencer of sorts, <laughs> uh, which which all of us people doing stuff in the public are, mm. uh, to a degree then him the the actions he took had a big amplification effect mm-hmm. um, i found that quite an interesting aspect of it that it's just doing stuff yourself is of course good but 
once you start to amplify it's when you can make an actual difference definitely and i've worked in behavior change for a long time and this is one of the aspects of it if you talk about these things and if you kind of declare the actions you're taking then that can really really boost behavior change with other people so um since starting this campaign so um i I now run the campaign group Flight Free UK. And the idea is that people take a pledge to take a set time off flying. So we're doing Flight Free 2020 at the moment. Um, and by doing that, you're, you're basically publicly signing up. It's not, you don't have to sign up with your name, but you're adding to the numbers on the pledge. And um, by, by doing that, it kind of, um, it's been so inspiring for so many people because they have said, I, I thought I was the only one. And now I know I'm not, I have, I feel more emboldened to talk about it. Um, and also people who are kind of thinking about the actions they might be able to take uh, to reduce their carbon footprint, but not really, um, not really taking that final step until they see loads of other people doing it. And they're like, oh, wow, this is a thing. It is a thing for people to choose not to fly. Okay, I'm going to, you know, sign me up sort of thing. So yeah, um, but yeah, you're right. If, if someone like Tom, like you, like me, who has a, a degree of a public profile, talks about this stuff, then we do have that kind of, rip, it does have a ripple effect that is hopefully um, larger than just our own actions and um, something that can, you know, start to snowball into change. Okay, so what are the top three, four, five things that we can actually do to help the climate without going to live in a cave. <laughs> okay, so um top like big impact stuff in your own life, obviously stop flying, so or fly less. So let's let's call it that. I've chosen never to fly again, but that's okay, that's not for everybody. So fly less is a massive massive one. Um stop driving. Um vegan diet or plant-based diet, um renewable energy, so green energy. And where'd you get that from? Um, so, so for me personally, I live off grid, so that's actually really easy. Okay. All my energy is off a solar panel. But if you live in a house, you would just be with a green energy provider. Such as? Uh, such as ecotricity or bulb or yeah. um, good energy, green energy. There are quite a few out there now. Um, I, 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 I hate boring things in life like changing energy <laughs> providers. I hate it with a heart, <laughs> but... I switched to bulb and it was ridiculously easy. Oh, um, yay. It was ridiculously easy. And also they give, I tell you, in the show notes, I'll put a, an affiliate link because they give me quite a lot of money every time I persuade <gasps> someone to change. How about wow. I put that link in, everyone we get to change to bulb, they'll give me loads of money wow. and I'll give it all to fl your flight free thing. How about that for doing <laughs> ah, it? I love that. So oh, yes, Right, please. so everyone has to sign for bulb. <laughs> Sorry, carry on then. She's done flying, driving. Fun vegan energy supply yeah. and i mean there's loads of other things but let's choose fast fashion as as the other one for our top five okay. um so yeah as i say my clothes are from charity shops um or if they're not they're from eth more ethical um brands and materials so I, I wear bam clothes bamboo um which is much better for the planet than cotton and blah 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 um one thing that we haven't mentioned which is not necessarily a lowering your carbon footprint thing it's more of a lifestyle choice uh which is i've decided that i'm not going to have children um but that is a wholly different decision to deciding what you're going to eat for tea that night <laughs> so i try and leave it out of those top 
five things, even though it is like, you know, we, we cannot, we cannot just focus on our own carbon footprints. If we keep on increasing the number of feet that mathematically doesn't work. Population is an, is an incredibly important subject when we're talking about climate change, biodiversity, consumption, all that kind of stuff. And here in the West, we have so much, um, our consumption levels are so high that actually choosing to have a smaller family or no kids at all, which is my personal choice, um, that that does have a massive impact on the future of the planet. So just a, yeah, just to put that in there. <laughs> okay, uh, just to throw a whole new can of worms. Oh, into yes. It. Yeah. I kind of can't um, not mention it, but also we don't need to talk about it beyond that. <laughs> no, you're, you're entirely right. Yeah. Having kids is an enormous carbon issue, but equally is a huge and sensitive one. But of course, geez, yeah. you're in the business of ruffling feathers so i think that's a very valid thing to consider feathers ruffled. okay but okay but it, but if i just go and eat beetroot and uh, don't go on holiday while everyone in china and america is doing whatever what good can little old me do surely the only way to make stuff happen is by the government and an example of that being put that little tax on plastic bags and suddenly the whole world stops using plastic bags. Mm. Yes, we definitely need government input. We absolutely need the government to be doing and putting measures in place so we can make these sustainable choices. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be making them as an individual. Um, In fact, um, if you're interested, there's a really really good article I wrote. (laughs) Um, I recently wrote something on individual individual action versus system change. And I put that, that's on our flight free website. So if you're interested, have a look at that. But it's, um, it's, the the two things are intricately interlinked. Um, You you can't really have one without the other. So um, you you need the government to put measures in place to make these sustainable choices more attractive. For example, like you just mentioned the 5p bag tax. Well, there's no tax on aviation fuel, which gives flights a massively unfair advantage compared to other modes of transport. I know. I mean, now in this day and age, when we're so climate aware, not to tax the most highly polluting form of transport fuel is complete climate crime. So, So just that would start to level the playing field enough that it might encourage some people to choose train travel because the the price price wise it would be more equal um so yeah that requires government but obviously the government is not going to impose or not going to introduce these measures if they see there's no public demand for it so by buying a plane ticket we're basically saying i support this industry i'm okay with the way things are and i'm i'm happy to to continue business as usual by not buying a plane ticket or by actively doing something else, you are saying, well, this is what I want. Um, and if enough of us do this together, of course, this is how supply and demand works, then then the industry and government follow. So as two examples, um, there has just been a sleeper train that's just um, started from Prague to Croatia. It launched uh, last week and has already sold 30,000 tickets. So the um, you know that shows a huge public demand for travel in that way, and the uh, the manager of that business has said, "Well, we will now um, imp- increase our n- the number of journeys per week from three to five because th- we have enough customers to make that viable." Okay, so that's industry responding to consumer demand. Um, in 
um, Sweden, where climate awareness is higher and the p- people are more aware of the impact of their flights, there was a 9% drop in domestic air travel last year, which is really impressive. As a result, the government um, stopped, stopped. Is that the word? Um, yeah, they, they took away some of the domestic flight routes because people weren't using them enough. So that, that is, or, or they showed that there was an, um, an increased demand for train travel. So they kind of, they cut those flight routes um, because yeah, they weren't, they weren't needed. So um, that, those are just two tiny examples of how we as consumers and as voters can demonstrate the behavior that we want to see um, or that we can demonstrate the changes that we would like to see and, if enough of us do it, of course, then then it um, it does tip the balance. So yeah, it, the individual action and government action are so intricate, intricately inter- intertwined, and we we definitely need both. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but can't can't I just offset my flights and then keep going to Magaluf? Well, you can get to Magaluf uh, by train and ferry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, offsetting is such a difficult one. Um, essentially offsetting as as the flight free uk campaign we don't support offsetting or suggest it because it doesn't lead to behavior change and we're a behavior change organization so that wouldn't make sense um the the thing about offsetting is that it kind of gives us license to continue our polluting behavior because we feel that it doesn't count we think oh well i planted a few trees so that will absorb the amount of carbon I've just emitted. So th- then it's neutral, right? And scarily, airlines push this message and say, you can fly carbon neutral if you just pay a few extra quid for a carbon offset. Unfortunately, that's never the case. No amount of trees planted will stop that carbon coming out of the, out of the back of that airplane. And that carbon is going into the atmosphere now. And that tree might not reach the point um, of maturity, which takes about 30 years, to absorb that carbon, it might not even ever get there. The, the, the news reports you read of um, vast swathes of tree of plant um, new trees, new trees that are dying because they aren't being looked after properly, or there's not enough water, or you know, climate change induced weather is um, is um, killing them off. So, but but as a consumer, you think it's okay because you paid for the offset. It's. It's not something that will, it doesn't balance out, unfortunately. The thing, the thing that taught me the most about the concept of a um, flight offsetting is a brilliant website called cheatneutral.com. Yes. Do you know it? Yes, I do. And I'll, re- do I'll just read you a little paragraph from there because it could be very handy for some of our listeners. Not for me, I hasten to add. <laughs> Inf- infidelity is a little like flying. We feel guilty about it and the harm it does to others, but sometimes we just do it anyway. But now, Serial love cheats, just like serial air travellers, can cleanse their consciences by logging on uh, to offset their infidelity. Pay just £2.50 to carry on cheating while funding monogamy-boosting offset projects. In effect, you pay someone else to stay faithful. Um, I thought that I mean, is, I think, I think it's a joke website, I don't know, but that, I found that explained the issue extremely well. That's a very good illustration, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> One of my favourite parts of my podcast is asking people the mystery questions from my mystery deck of cards. So can I ask you a few of these? Go ahead. Before, before this is coming to the end of the podcast, so before we do this, would you like to give a call to action of whatever, whatever you want to give a rant at to <laughs> both my listeners? 
Uh, well, I so feel my like... mum and Auntie Nora. Uh, okay. Hi, mum. Hi, Auntie Nora. Um, I feel like everybody is on their own journey to all this stuff. Um, and we all need to come to it in our own time. But I really urge people to look to look at this very closely. Look at your own carbon footprint. Look at your own lifestyle and see what other things you can change because we are so much up against it now. We are so close to the point of no return in terms of climate breakdown. I would urge everybody with a sense of urgency to, to just look up and see what positive changes you can make because this shouldn't be a kind of um, doom and gloom. Oh, we're, we're all going to die, you know, um, and what can I do? It should be very empowering and positive. And um, that's what I have always found. I've, uh, you know, even using, say, cycling around the UK as an example, I didn't need to fly to Thailand to go backpacking because I had the most incredible adventure right here in the UK. And I have absolutely no regrets. And I, and, and it changed my life, of course. So, um, yeah, we, it's how we view things. I think that's really important. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I love what you're doing. I really, really like your um, fierce practicing what you preach. It's really inspiring. <laughs> I'm I'm belated to this whole world, but from my experience, I have really found committing to exploring the UK to be mm. so much more thrilling and liberating and exciting than I'd imagined. Um, I have, to my astonishment really enjoyed uh becoming a vegan i <gasps> rustle up a mean doll now wow. and also look if you join the green party they even give you a badge <laughs> which did yes so I what, have a green what party more badge. can you need <laughs> <laughs> so i'm i'm uh thank you for the championing work you do keep keep Barricade. banging at the barricades <laughs> thank um, you. right unfortunately i can't let you choose a card so you have to say stop Stop. <laughs> if you had one extra hour every day all to yourself, how would you spend it? Oh, I would. Oh, I should probably say something very enlightening, shouldn't I? No, um, you've done enough enlightening. I, Tell us you'll eat some cake or something. I would spend it writing, actually, because I love writing and I never do it enough. And I try to set aside time to write and it just it never happens so if i had an extra hour a day that's what i would do okay i was very intrigued by the way that you moved your website and deleted your old blog i find <laughs> that that sort of thrillingly <gasps> cathartic experience the sort of thing that i quite often dream of doing but probably <laughs> certainly wouldn't dare yeah that was quite a moment but i did yeah. it i i have to say i kept the best ones they're in my yeah. they're in the archive so i can re rekindle them if necessary <laughs> yeah but also as yeah right you ready say stop stop oh dear this is a deep one <laughs> what is the biggest question you would like to answer in your own life oh, oh you goodness. can you can say pass by the way on any oh, of i these. think we should pass that one yeah okay it feels a bit too close to we'll lunch be... for that yeah <laughs> Okay, say stop. Stop. What book should I read to make myself more wild, bold and curious? I, one of, one of the books that sticks with me the most is um, Peddling to Hawaii by Stevie Smith. Um, 
because, oh man, he's such an entertaining writer. It's so well written and it's such an outlandish adventure. So it's about um, Stevie and his mate, Jason, who decided to do a human powered circumnavigation, circumnavigation of the globe. So they pedaled across, they pedaled down to Spain and then they got in a pedalo <laughs> and pedaled across the ocean. So it wasn't just rowing an ocean, it was pedaling an ocean. Um, and it is such a moving book, especially because as this, as the title suggests, he only got as far as Hawaii before he came home. Um, one of the lines that sticks with me the most from that book is, I have shown I have the courage to do this. Do I have the courage not to do this? And I think um, it, it inspired me so much with adventure and with world travel and with his human story as well. I found really, really moving. So yeah, pedaling to Hawaii. It, it, I don't think it ever did well as, as well as it deserves to do. That is a yeah, good recommendation. And then if you enjoy those two characters, you can carry on with Jason's yes. three books that he carries because, on. Yeah, uh, Jason continued from Hawaii and completed the circumnavigation. So, yeah. In 13 years, human power circumnavigation. <laughs> yeah. Right, we'll do a couple more and okay. then I'm ready for lunch. Say so stop. Stop. Oh, these are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat now uh. and ask you one that's not so deep. This okay. must be, I tell you what, this is, I'm so pathetic. I'm a typical bloke. Once I get hungry, I've just uh, <laughs> run out of any resolve in my life. Okay, I'm going to ask you one, um, which I know is in here, which I enjoy is, how weird are you on a scale of one to 10? <laughs> oh man. Okay, I don't think I'm weird at all, but probably lots of other people would think I was weird. I have quite an unconventional lifestyle. Um, but yes, yeah, perfectly normal to me. Okay, what, no, come on then, give us a number. Oh, let's go mid then. We'll compromise five. Five, okay. <laughs> uh, and final question. Let's hope it's not a deep and meaningful one. Say stop. Stop. Oh. <laughs> uh, did anyone ever warn you against being adventurous? Oh, and how yeah. How did that feel? Um. Well, before I did my first big bike ride loads of people told me not to do it they just sort of told me I'd fail as if that's a reason not to start something and um yeah I was like oh well screw you sod you sorry it's a bit more polite and I did it anyway so <laughs> brilliant well I think that is a, the perfect rallying call for us to <laughs> to end on so uh, Anna it's lovely as always to uh, chat to you and uh, keep up the keep up the important and Good work. And I love the way you do it all with good cheer as well. You don't just make everyone feel miserable, which is, I think, a, a difficult fine line to get in all of this, isn't it? So, yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Thanks, Al. Cool. Thanks very much, Anna. It's lovely to talk to okay. you. Okay. Bye. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? 
Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.